Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. You're listening to Agile for Humans with Ryan Ripley. Learn more at ryanripley.com. Hey, Agile for Humans listeners, three things to get in front of you before we start this episode. First, Todd Miller and I, we're bringing Barry Overham, Kristen Verwitz over from the Netherlands. These two guys created Scrum.org's PSM2 Advanced Scrum Master course. Well, guess what? The four of us are going to co-train it together in Boston, May 8th and 9th. This is the Advanced Scrum Master class to jump into. Four professional Scrum trainers for a maximum 34 students. And by the way, over half the tickets are sold. This is the one to jump into. If you've been meaning to, to take that next step on your Scrum Master journey, this is it. Whether you have a, a CSM, a PSM, doesn't matter. Come and join us. This is your next step down the Scrum Master journey. Two more things going on. Todd Miller and I, we are going to facilitate a Liberating Structures Immersion Workshop in Indianapolis, Indiana, June 13th and 14th. We want you to check that out. We're bringing Barry and Christian back in September, September 24th and 25th. We're going to do another Liberating Structures Immersion Workshop, Boston. So if you want to check these events out, ryanripley.com forward slash PSM2, the number two. If you want to check out the Advanced Scrum Master course, ryanripley.com forward slash Indie. If you want to check out the Indianapolis Immersion Liberating Structures Immersion Workshop, ryanripley.com forward slash Boston. If you want to check out the Liberating Structures Immersion Workshop in Boston this September 24th and 25th, check them out. These are great opportunities. We hope to see many listeners there. These classes are also linked in the show notes. Enjoy this episode. Check out the notes. Check out the classes. And uh, leave us your feedback. Let us know what you think. All right, enough. Into the episode. Welcome to Agile for Humans. Our goal is to bring humanity back into the world of software delivery with agile values, principles, and practices. We gather top agilists from around the globe to share insights and help you grow as servant leaders in your organizations. We seek to open minds, change hearts, and deliver value into the world. Now here is our host, professional scrum trainer and agile practitioner, Ryan Ripley. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me today, Jeff Gotthelf and Gary Padretti. It rhymes with spaghetti, right, Gary? <laughs> That's true. I like that. So Gary and Jeff, they're joining me today. They've uh, they've just released 
a new class through scrum.org along with um, the rest of the trainer community. Professional Scrum with User Experience. So guys, first of all, congratulations as a as a course steward. I certainly understand the the trials and tribulations and the the stress and all those great things that come with getting a new class out into the world. So first of all, congratulations to both of you. Thanks very Thank much. You. It was uh, it was a, a long time in the making, so uh, we're glad to see it see the light of day. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And so for many of you uh, in the in the agile world, I'm sure you're very familiar with Jeff. He's Jeff. What is the title of your book? I've got it uh, sitting behind me, and I and I'm being lazy, but the the UX book that you put out into the world um, not too long ago. Well, actually, so the book is the, the first book that I co-wrote with Josh Seiden was called Lean UX, and that's the book where um, uh, a lot of the original thinking about this came out of. And that, believe it or not, that book's been out for uh, six years. Um, there was a second edition of that book that came out in 2016. So there's a more recent version, but the first edition came out in March of 2013, which is um, kind of unbelievable to think about. Yeah, it, it's actually, I, I now have it in front of me, Lean UX, Designing Great Products with Agile Teams. It's, it's that focus on um, designing great products that really attracted me to the book. I'm admittedly reading the second edition. I, I wasn't uh, around for the first, but um, it seems like there's this problem in the industry, and I've seen this quite a bit, and I know, Gary, when we're teaching classes, we get this question a lot, especially in the PSM course. Uh, how do we do the UX, UI activities the product discovery within a sprint. And I'm wondering, you know, we, we've, we've offered various answers throughout the years, but guys, is this the problem we're trying to solve with this course? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And the, the sort of things that we hear, we talk about at the beginning of the class and sort of why are we here? What are we trying to solve? The sort of things that we hear from, uh, say, uh, scrum people, scrum practitioners, uh, scrum developers are... Um, the design work takes too long or um, maybe in a in less than mature sort of situation, it might just be, well, why don't you guys work that stuff out and we'll just build it um, and things like that. Things we hear from the designer community are things like, oh, my work doesn't really fit into a sprint. Uh, I'm doing a little bit more strategic sort of stuff and the sprints seem very tactical or we hear things like, well, developers really just want to uh, build stuff. They don't really care about design or, or even worse, they don't care about users. Um, and obviously those, those sentiments sometimes are, are showing a, uh, deeper problems. But the, the mechanics of Scrum and some of the mechanics of UX uh, sometimes they don't they don't quite meet up, even though the underlying principles, the underlying theory, the focus on users, the sifting and winnowing to the right solution, et cetera, all of those things are exactly the same. So it's sometimes it's very strange to us about why there's such a miss there. Yeah, it's an issue that uh, my background is design and and kind of the first ten years of my career, um, it wasn't an issue because because, Agile had not taken the world by storm at that point yet, um, but moving into kind of the last decade or so, um, it really became a challenge because there was a way that we knew how to do design work. And then there was this new way uh, that software developers were working and bringing those two worlds together 
proved to be extremely challenging. And, and look, many, many teams still struggle with that today, which is the whole reason this class was even uh, conceived, because the, the problem exists. And like Gary said, it, it doesn't have to. The, 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 fun, the fundamental values and principles are the same when it comes to Scrum and design and user experience and user-centered design. Um, but the, the melding the processes in a way that respects both of them has proven elusive for a lot of organizations. It's that elusiveness that I think has led to uh, a lot of different practices emerging. So Jeff, you spent a lot of time in your book talking about uh, staggered sprints, the evolving design sprint, um, dual track agile, um, but then you come to using the rhythms of Scrum to actually get UX as that first class citizen uh, in our product development process. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the evolution of of some of the, the dual track agile, the staggered sprint, some of that thinking, and how that's evolved into now professional Scrum uh, with user experience? Yep, so if you, if you go back to 2007, um, Desiree C and Lynn Miller um, working at AutoCAD in Toronto, I believe. I want to make sure. I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, wrote this paper on staggered sprints. They were really the first two people to put out a, a thesis on how to bring design and UX together in an agile world. Uh, unfortunately for Desiree and Lynn, their paper was misunderstood. It had this diagram in it that if you look at it, it actually looks like uh, mini waterfalls. It looks like really kind of rapids almost. And people took that very literally to the point where they said, okay, this, this means staggered sprints. It means design works and then engineering works, design works and then engineering works. Um, and that's the attempt that people really tried to put together. And still many organizations still work this way. And, and unfortunately, that was a misinterpretation of, of what they were trying to achieve. What they were trying to say is that there are two kinds of work here but they were actually being done by the same team, by the same people. It wasn't two teams doing two different kinds of work. And um, so, so there was a lot, of, a lot of obstacle there. But, you know, all of us who were trying to figure out how to make this stuff work tried this concept of staggered sprints. And all we really ended up doing was recreating the waterfall, but mi mini versions of the waterfall. In other words, basically rapids, because you're working for a, as a designer, you're working a sprint ahead of an engineer. You complete a design and then you hand it off to that engineer. Generally speaking, uh, they didn't participate in the creation of that design. They didn't have any, any insight or any input into it. And so when you hand it off to them, they say, well, that's terrific, but I can't build half of this. Or I'm not sure why I'm doing this. Or um, this is going to take three sprints for us to execute. And, and, and it's those types of handoffs and negotiations that we're ultimately trying to avoid uh, and we're trying to build a much, more, a much tighter collaboration between product management, software engineering, and design. And so... In my practice, you know, back in, in 2007, 2008, 2009, um, I'm working with, with my design teams in New York City, and we experimented with all of these different ways of working until we figured out what worked for us. And what worked for us was a tight collaboration with engineering and product management that worked in short cycles, sprints, that prioritized work based not just on what we needed to deliver, but also what the team was trying to learn during that sprint. And that was, that was building a, a unified scrum team that involved designers as full-fledged members of that team. 
And for us, that you know, it, it was an organic arrival. We ended up there through a series of experiments and and trials and and failures and that type of thing. Um, and and as I started to write and speak about this, there was a tremendous hunger for this content, and that's really where the whole Lean UX conversation came from. And so that's really kind of how how you know the the, the Lean UX ideas came to be through trials, uh, failures, experimentations, and really figuring out a way that worked for my team in my specific situation, and then adding material from others who were finding similar successes where they were working. So, so Gary, this is a, I'm hearing a lot of things that we talk about in our, in our current classes, right? Especially cross-functional teams. And, and I'm curious, I, I know you get this a lot, I get this a lot in courses. Jeff, I'm sure you get this as you travel and keynote around the world. You know, why have we left UX, UI, these, these problem-facing, customer-facing considerations out of the cross-functional definition, right? Because if a cross-functional team is really supposed to be able to do everything needed to deliver an increment, wouldn't it stand to reason that we would have already incorporated these people and these practices onto our scrum teams. That's exactly it, Ryan. And I, I think that um, to some extent, people have been doing that successfully and they've been figuring it out sort of like like what uh, the story that Jeff just told there of starting, trying something, um, figuring it out, seeing what works. Excuse me. Um, seeing what works there. And the, the, the answer to your question ultimately is there is no reason there is no reason why um, UX designers aren't part of uh, cross-functional teams to start with from the beginning. I think that the the thing I mentioned before about mechanics of some of these things and the assumption that designers are doing longer cycle work or that all of their work is longer cycle work, um, things like that have created a, a natural headbutting uh, there between uh, people that want to work in sprints, that is a, a month or less, uh, a cycle of a month or less with um, designers. And the sort of things that, that Jeff mentioned that you were hearing <clears throat> when people um, experimented with dual track agile or the misinterpretation maybe of dual track agile and they had staggered sprints and there was this handoff it was always it was always amazing to me. It's like, oh man, we have been through this before in the agile community. We've been through this exact same sequence and these same set of assumptions and the same headbutting when we were dealing with, um, say, database people and the relational database world, where uh, it's a little bit more about having a schema and defining the schema and, and oh, the schema is very important and we need to do this stuff before you guys can build your little application on top of it. And then we found some patterns to, to deal with that and things like um, Ambler and, and Satellage's book, uh, Refactoring Databases, uh, came along and gave us a bunch of ideas and patterns about how we could do that. And then it was maybe architects, application architects, where they're like, hey, you know, we do strategic work. We don't really belong in your little sprints. We do the strategic work, and we have to do our work before people can build stuff. And we found patterns there um, to work towards evolutionary uh, architecture or emergent architecture. And we've found ways to bring uh, architects uh, into the fold of a cross-functional team. 
And I think the the UX community is kind of um, feeling the same sort of things. You're hearing the same exact sort of things where it's like, um, oh, you you gave me this design. It's going to take me, like Jeff said, it's going to take me three sprints to do this. Or this doesn't make any sense to me. Or we already built this and it works, so we don't really care. That's the same exact sort of things that architects would hear when they would deliver a design in a, um, an architecture um, in a sort of big bang fashion. When they went away from the team, they did some work, and they brought it to the team and said, hey, here's your architecture. They're the exact same things. It's amazing uh, to me. And um, the good news about that is that we have some patterns and, and some things to rely upon to help solve these, these problems. We've seen it before, so we can probably get through it again. So some of the thinking that, that seems to be emerging, especially from this course offering and bringing user experience to the forefront front of Scrum practices and I hope this is carrying through into the class as well, there's this idea of shifting these feature and product roadmaps into problem roadmaps. And this is something that, Jeff, I took from your book, and I took it to heart, and I've actually started using this type of language with teams to great, with great success, especially at that, that stakeholder level and also alignment from top to bottom. What problems are we solving? And I have found that that's been very helpful in, in engaging the, the user experience professionals with the development teams, and it's kind of creating that shared purpose. And I've found that to be um, a really fascinating shift. Is that something that we're going to see uh, in this course as we as we look at how to incorporate um, you know UX considerations into the definition of done and to backlog prioritization? Are we going to see some of this problem road mapping or kind of mentality um, shining through on Scrum teams going forward? Absolutely. To me, this is the key to increasing the agility of teams and organizations and then really bringing together this cross-functional collaboration in, in the most powerful way that we can. Because what we're doing, right, so, so, so one, of the, one of the anti-patterns that I've seen in the last decade or so is that organizations are are bringing Agile in to their practices with the expectation that it is there to increase productivity and efficiency. In other words, it's there to get more higher quality code out the door faster. And the optimization that uh, many organizations do when it comes to implementing Agile and then Scrum specifically is focused around just that. It's just, hey, how do we get these engineering teams to get more code, you know, fewer bugs, more code out the door faster, more predictably? And what they're forgetting is the decision-making framework around, well, what, what should we code? When is it done? We're building systems these days. And so in theory, we could be working on these systems indefinitely. When do we decide that we're done? And so by, by shifting, by shifting the conversation from, hey, let's build a thing to let's solve a problem, we're forcing the team to think about how to define when the problem is solved. And that is that was a really interesting conversation for Eric, Gary, Josh Seiden, and myself when we were building this class. It was one of the first things we flagged right away, um, you know, when we started talking about this was we are going to have to tackle the definition of done in this because Scrum has a very specific definition of done. And if we start to shift things towards a problem-focused uh, approach, 
we really have to think how does the definition of done, the scrum definition of done fit into this problem oriented world? Because if you think about it, right? So, so putting aside for just a second and forgive me, just for just a second, the scrum definition of done, right? If you think about how do you know you solved the problem? Well, you know, you solved the problem because you, you have impacted the behavior who have of the people who have this problem. Right? They've changed the way they interact with the system. They're doing something hopefully that's more beneficial for them and hopefully beneficial for us as a business. Now, the question is, how much of that do we need to happen? In other words, what percentage of, of our target audience do we, need, uh, do we need to change? How much of that is good enough for us? The challenge there is that the answer to that is not a binary criterion. Right? When we're shipping code, um, does it work as this? Is it shipped? Yes. Does it work as designed? Yes. Is, is a fairly binary conversation. But hey, did, did we increase retention by 50%? Right? We're, 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 churning, we're churning our customers. Can we retain our customers? Can we increase retention by 50%? Well, we increased retention by 28%. Is that good? Is that bad? Right? Is it good? Should we keep working on this? Are we done? Right? And this was a really interesting and challenging conversation for us because as soon as you shift to that problem-centric mindset, the, the, the measures of success get, uh, they, become less, they become less binary. Uh, they become kind of the spectrum of options here. And so, that's the, so it's a more customer-centric way of looking at, at the work that we do. It's a... It's a um, it's a more difficult way of measuring the success of what we do. And for us, it proved to be certainly one of the bigger conversations as we were reconciling the scrum definition of done and the, I don't want to call it the UX definition of done because I don't think such a thing exists, but more of sort of the, the customer centric view on when we stop working on something. Yeah. And if I can build on that, we kind of follow that through. This is a natural progression of the things that we've talked about with, say, product owners. Product owners need to champion a vision and a, and a higher level understanding. And we've been talking a lot um, lately about, um, you know, a product owner could um, delegate out certain work that they have to do, like writing a user story, which some people sort of falsely assume that the product owner would have to write all the user stories. Um, the product owner could delegate out work like that. They still remain accountable for that work, but they could delegate that out. So a product owner could operate at a high level and just talk about a, a vision and maybe talk about a problem that needs to be solved. And the dev team, uh, perhaps, or the dev team together with the product owner could figure out potential solutions to that and go forward and try some of those potential solutions. And then um, it also building on stuff that we've been talking about, we, you know, um, um, I'm sorry, Ryan, you teach the uh, PSPO class, the professional scrum product owner class, and you've seen over the years now how that has become, um, has started to focus on validation, the validation of the delivery of value. Right. And that's what that's what Jeff's talking about here, where the the definition of done in Scrum is generally just describing what it means to be releasable. But in order to validate that you have solved a customer's problem, you have to actually release 
And then you have to check after you've released, you have to check, did I solve their actual problem? I have to do the validation part. And that's, that's kind of what Jeff's talking about. It's not as radical for the scrum, you know, uh, for the scrum faithful out there in radio land. This is, this is not as radical, um, as, as it might sound. It's an, and it's not a, but right. It's the definition of done, um, get to releasable and do some validation, uh, after that. Yeah, the I really, really love that progression and how you two have built up that idea around definition of done. I, Gary, we got to we got a chance to look at this content with with uh, your fellow steward Eric Weber. Um, I think it was late last year, and I just kept thinking to myself, this is a class that is not only going to help UX professionals um, understand how they can really thrive and 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 work with Scrum teams, but I really think it's also an opportunity for product owners to up their game on the validation side. You know, to really understand: Are we solving problems? If we think we are great, but how do we know? Do you think it's fair to say that this is also very product ownership uh, centric in a way that, uh, that w- a way that product owners can really get to uh, a next level uh, of really understanding their product, their markets, and even their customers? Yeah, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head there, Ryan, because what we've seen so far in our beta teaches and now some of our first early um, uh, post uh, release here teaches what we've seen is the um, one of the most effective pairs of students that might show up for a class is a designer together with uh, a product owner that they're working with. Um, we, we see that's like really effective, and you can see the interaction between them, and you can see the light bulbs uh, sort of go on in their head between them and talking through. Ah, here's what we can do. Here's how we can use this. That said, that said, um, we hope to, I think, bring this across to all the members of a, of a Scrum team. I think uh, there's a lot of good things and techniques in here in the class that the Scrum Master could help um, facilitate, steward uh, for a, an entire Scrum team to get involved. And that ultimately means the development team understanding how they can be involved with design, how they can get closer to the user, how... Um, they can be invested in uh, in these design concepts in the same way that, like, I go back to my analogy, in the same way that they should be invested in the architecture of the system. Um, and so the 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 designer can become part of that cross-functional development team in Scrum and become co- sort of a steward or a champion for design concepts, for thinking about the user first, for the various personas that have been worked up for a particular application, et cetera, sort of naturally bringing the attention back to uh, those concepts. But they're doing that from inside the team. So we really hope to uh, have some connection also with uh, development team members and scrum masters too. But you you really hit the nail on the head there with um, product owners and designers um, together sort of attending this, this class has been incredibly effective. No, I, yeah, it, it really, holistically, even as a Scrum Master, I am curious to get into this course and really um, take a look at how I can better serve teams by incorporating a lot of these UX um, guidelines, principles, these professionals. And so, I, I mean, it's super exciting across the spectrum, but I think those product owners out there who have struggled with uh, product discovery, value, and validation, this is going to be interesting as well. Jeff, this is another course where 
we've pulled in professionals uh, from these disciplines like UX. I mean, you're you and Josh are. I mean, you're at the top of the game when it was uh, the Kanban course. We Daniel Vicanti, you know, Yuval Yurit, two people who are well known in that community. I had the opportunity to to have a number of discussions with Daniel, especially, and he's very passionate and he gets fired up about some of the things about Scrum that and, and Kanban that were kind of a mismatch. I'm wondering if uh, those same kind of conversations happened during the, the creation of this course where there were areas of Scrum that you really had to reconcile for yourself, that, that there were pieces of it that you know Gary and Eric had to push back on or perhaps um, help explain or change or, or look at. Uh, any of those kind of conversations happen where you know, some of these things really had to get reconciled and, uh, and, and even uh, changed a little bit for these ideas to really blend and come together? I mean, yeah, so there are definitely a few that come to mind. I mean, we, talk, we, we touched briefly already on the definition of done. That was a big one, and we really needed to we, – we flagged that one early, and I, I talked about that already, so I don't want to rehash that one. But there was that one. There was the one that was perhaps less controversial but certainly missing from the conversation, at least the Scrum conversation to date, was the inclusion of designers as full-time members on Scrum teams, right? So that was that was something that we definitely wanted to, to make sure – was uh, was coming across, and that was um, it was clear that that um, this was you know non-negotiable. Look, you're going to get designers that push back on that. They're going to say, "I don't I don't want to be a full time member of a Scrum team. I uh, I don't I don't have anything to do half the time." They talk about things that don't 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 mean anything to me. We talked about that. How do we make the Scrum process meaningful to a designer so that they're part of the team full time. It's it's absolutely possible and it's absolutely uh, uh, critical to the success. And then I think the other thing that we talked about that we flagged up front that we really needed to reconcile was uh, how many backlogs, right? This was an interesting conversation. It's one that I continue to have on a regular basis. Where, where does the design work go? Right. Should we have a discovery backlog and a delivery backlog? Should we have a design backlog? How many of these different backlogs should we have? Um, look, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I came into that conversation, and I'm sure, and I'm confident Josh just did, did as well, with, with, with a very strong point of view that there should be one backlog. My experience has told me that as soon as you start to you know, fragment the the management of the of the tasks of the work into different lists. Um, inevitably, one of those lists becomes the go to list, and then the rest become the ones we ignore. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, it's that was that was an interesting conversation that I don't feel like we had too much controversy on. But I, you know, I was I was really happy to hear Gary and Eric's points of view on this because. Um, to me, if, if we don't treat all the work the same way, then inevitably some of the work gets shortchanged in, in prioritization, in uh, investment, in um, uh, importance to the, to, the, to the end result. And, and that's when team members start to lose interest. They, start, they stop paying attention. Um, so those three things at least were, were, were really important concepts that we needed to reconcile. And that certainly proved to, to provide interesting and, and a, you know, deeper conversation than some of the other things where we, we were you know, 100% in agreement on from day one. Yeah, some of the those changes are certainly fascinating. I think there's also a shift here that, and it's very subtle, pulling uh, UX into into this professional Scrum and 
type of type of structure, and it's really that um, we're bringing teams closer to the customer. And, and I mm-hmm. really love the fact that with that UX person, a hundred percent on the team, dedicated to that product, dedicated to to working alongside developers and and business analysts and document writers and all of these development team members, we now have that not necessarily voice of customer because that comes from the product owner, but someone who actually understands that experience at a very deep level. And they understand the problems that we're trying to solve and they're thinking in that problem solving mindset. And now we've, we've changed the, the equation a little bit that nucleus is the, the, the center has shifted a little bit from feature factories, which, which in the scrum world I think are very prevalent. Instead, we're actually trying to get to that problem solving mindset that, but it's that customer-centric attitude that I think is a really fascinating shift. Gary, I know that you've been able to teach some of these classes early on with Jeff and some others. Are you seeing some of those light bulb moments where people are saying, wow, we can actually, through the incorporation of these practices and by having UX alongside all the time, we're having that shift to problem solving, but even more so that customer-centric type of attitude? Yeah, definitely. And there's a few things in the class that that come to mind here where you might see these light bulb moments. Um, One is the idea that some of this early work, um, we use um, Jeff and and Josh's uh, Lean UX Canvas to structure uh, some of the work that we do in in the class. And that's just a a really nice, you know, there's a lot of canvases out there. This is a really nice one um, for the sort of progression of work that we're that we're talking about. And like any canvas, it is a great uh, tool for making uh, maybe complex ideas or a lot of information easily transparent, make it concise and transparent to all. And early on in the class, when we do some things where we talk about um, customers, we talk about a business problem statement, um, things like that, there's a lot of light bulb moments where people kind of realize, well, yeah, of course the development team would need to know this, right? And um, things like that. And, the, oh, the development team could participate in sort of figuring this out. Um, the development team could participate in uh, customer interviews, for example, or stakeholder interviews, et cetera. And so you see some light bulbs there. And then as we progress through and start to build out um, hypotheses and then experiments to um, validate or refute those hypotheses. And we start to talk about how does this relate to Scrum's product backlog? You see some, a lot of light bulbs come on there also, where it's sort of the, the ultimate question we keep asking is why wouldn't you have product backlogs, which are, uh, I'm sorry, product backlog items, which are hypotheses? And maybe even initially in hypo- hypotheses, and then as you refine it, it becomes it breaks out into experiments that you run to test that hypothesis. Why, why wouldn't you do that? And that and there's another place where I see uh, some light bulb moments of ah, here's how we could connect this up. Here's why it's not so different. Here's where it could fit in. Here's where it makes sense. You know, Gary, you, something you just said actually triggered one, one other concept that uh, I would add to that to this conversation, and, and and one that is again, if you talk to designers who work in Scrum teams or in Scrum situations today, I guarantee you this is one of their most hated words, and 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 
it doesn't need to be, but again, it comes back to all the, all the conversation we've been having so far. And it's the word is velocity. Um, you know, designers, particularly those working with scrum teams, they despise this word because it's, again, it's about speed. Now, the question becomes, well, the challenge is that organizations, again, have employed the agile process, the scrum process, to drive up the amount of software they're producing with the, with the false belief that the more software you produce, the more value you deliver to customers. And like Gary said, we've got to declare our assumptions, we've got to write our hypotheses, and we've got to validate those hypotheses because just because we think it's a good idea doesn't mean that our customers find it to be a good idea or anything of value. And so just because we can build it doesn't mean that we should. And so the production of code is measured by velocity. That's that's how most teams, are, that, that certainly that I've worked with, are using this, this term, um, is in direct conflict with satisfying user needs. Now, the interesting thing is that you can maintain that term. Right. Because there's lots of of, of this, this speed is absolutely crucial to the success of, of modern business and modern product digital product teams. Right. But speed of what speed to market of delivery, of course. But what about the speed of learning? Right. What's the velocity of learning? How quickly can you get feedback on an idea? Right. That becomes a, a really interesting uh, facet of the velocity conversation that we've built into this course that doesn't currently happen with most teams. And so, so, so then the conversation becomes not just how quickly can we get uh, high quality code out to market, but how quickly can we validate that, that we should be working on that code and that the design and development uh, and choices and the business rule choices that we've made for that code actually meet customer needs. And that's a, a far different framing of velocity than currently exists for many of the teams, certainly that I work with. You know, Gary, what I'm and Jeff, what I'm hearing out of this discussion is really EBM, and, and what I mean is this is the uh, uh, the the metrics and and some of the measures that Scrum.org has put forward as it's enterprise business management. It's a it's a framework we use, but what I'm hearing is ability to innovate plus time to market. Those two in conjunction um, can be a far better interpretation, or as Jeff is saying, a redefinition of velocity that actually shows how quickly can we learn and then take those learnings and go to the market. I mean, Gary, am I onto something here or have I mis, mis, uh, misread where you're going? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. It's uh, evidence-based management or EBM, um, the Scrum.org concept, talks a lot about things that, that we talk about in the class too. And we're, we're working on doing a little bit more alignment of the maybe few few of the things that we mentioned in class with uh, some of the things that are talked about in EBM, but EBM is ultimately about trying to find metrics that get closer to measuring the delivery of actual value, like actual value, you know, um, current value, um, ability to innovate, sort of future value sort of things, um, et cetera. And yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And to go back to it, what um, Jeff was saying there about, the um, velocity and the current interpretations and where the focus is and, and things like that. Jeff and Josh really helped me well, with something that I've been using in, in classes all over the place already. And it's a real simple thing. And it's think about outcomes over output. 
And I think if we wanted to sum up uh, sort of some of the things that that um, Jeff was just talking about there, I always pause because it's Jeff and Josh, Jeff and Josh, and I always feel like I'm going to call call Jeff the Josh and Josh Jeff. But um, it happens all what, the uh, time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What uh, what. Um, um, Jeff was was talking about there to sum up some of that and some of that thinking is exa- that's exactly it, and, and that's a name is a literally the name a name of a module in the class it's outcomes over output, and it's like you could crank out code, you could crank out features, you can crank out uh, whatever, and you may or may not be getting what you need uh, in terms of change of customer behavior and and in customer satisfaction out of that. You may or may not be. Uh, output does not equal outcomes, and we have to think about outcomes. And it goes back to that. Um, th- this all this all flows together. It goes back to the framing the work as as problems to solve. We're going to solve a problem for a customer, for a user. And in order to do that, um, we need to validate at the end that we have produced an outcome. We haven't just done some stuff. We've actually produced that outcome, that change in behavior uh, for the customer. So. Something else that I really like about these concepts, and we've talked about the impact on definition of done, the impact on uh, validating the value we've delivered, but I think this will actually lead to more transparent product backlogs. And this is something I really like about these, these new classes. Professional Scrum with Kanban, I think, brings forward some transparency to the sprint with the, some of the lean metrics that, that Vacanti and others have brought forward. I think with this class, uh, the professional scrum uh, with user experience, I think, again, we're enhancing transparency um, into our scrum practices, but especially on the product backlog, there's this idea of UX debt. And it's one that I doubt many teams are actually tracking, but it's probably causing delays and issues up and down their product backlog. So, Jeff, can you uh, help the listeners a little bit out with this concept of UX debt and some of the havoc it can wreak uh, all throughout your, your product roadmap, your problem map, however you're tracking progress, and just some of those, those impacts that it can have. Yeah, uh, I, love this, I love this conversation because um, and it, it ties back just a little bit to that backlog conversation that we had earlier. Because when I was managing uh, my design team at the Ladders in New York, um, about six, seven years ago, uh, we had a UX debt board. So there was the, the main, uh, you know, board for the uh, scrum board for the team. And then there was the UX debt board. And because we had kept the UX debt board separate from the, where we were keeping the main backlog of work, the UX debt board became a confessional. It was the place where we went and apologized for the sins of not doing really great design work and cutting corners and uh, not going back and and finishing the kinds of uh, putting in the kind of polish that would make for a truly delightful experience for the people that we were creating products and services for. The, the, The thing with UX debt is, is it happens when the organization that we work for doesn't value good design. Uh, It happens when an organization that we work for values the production of software rather than the solving of problems, the achieving of outcomes, everything that we've talked about here. And so in general, the organization sees as acceptable uh, sacrificing the polish, the uh, the extra steps it would take to create the kinds of experiences 
that truly get customers and users to enjoy using the product and to come back and to do it again to be more successful. And all they, they, they and, and, and almost invariably the organizations that do this are also at the same time out of the other side of their mouth saying things like we want to be the Apple of CRM software we want to be the Netflix of of you know uh, of learning management get, systems don't get Jeff started on this one oh too late <laughs> well we only have ten minutes left so I think we'll be all right <laughs> yeah no but but you know but you know it's, it's, and so it's it's. It's kind of like on the one hand, they, 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 you know, well, if you want to be the Apple of something, right? Apple was a design-led company, and so the the reality is is that it all comes back to that conversation that Gary talked about, which is outcomes, right? If if the outcome that we're looking for is is some kind of a meaningful change in customer behavior, then we're always looking to optimize the. the design, the code, the copywriting to create that outcome. There's always a way that we can optimize that. And so inevitably, just like there's tech debt, there's going to be UX debt. We're going to get done what we can get done in the time that we have. But we should always go back and see if maybe instead of maybe maybe improving the user experience in this particular case achieves our outcome, right? The goal at the end of the day is, is not to to write more code, it's to make customers more successful. And sometimes polishing the design, kind of paying off some of that UX debt um, will help us achieve that. You know, so Je- Jeff and Gary both, I think there's some humility at play here. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to elevate the conversation a little bit because I actually believe in, and let's see if I'm taking this too far, okay? I actually believe this is the battleground going forward. And what I mean is... The technology is, is always important. Working together in teams is, is a difficult skill. We're figuring that out. But going forward, when products release, if the user experience is awful, they lose. It doesn't matter how great the technology was. It doesn't matter how awesome your scrum practices were. It doesn't matter how many story points you delivered. It doesn't matter how many focus groups you did. If the experience you deliver is awful, people abandon shopping carts. People do not sign up. I... I mean, I've had this with numerous applications where I've gone to um, a, a website and I go to buy something and the interface was awful. I had to put in, I had to answer 20 questions to spend money. So I went to Amazon um, or I don't like Hulu's interface. It's a pain in the butt to use on a TV. So I stick with Netflix. And I yeah. really think this class is bringing forward a skill, a practice, um, a discipline. I think it actually is a discipline that this is a competitive advantage. This is where battles are going to be won in the marketplace. And the teams who really get this, the teams who really embrace this and make UX, that user experience, a first-class citizen, have a chance to, to do some real market disruption and grab some market share. Do you think that's fair or have I gone a little too far there? I, I don't think you've gone too far at all. In fact, the things that you listed, number of story points completed, number of uh, focus groups run, number of experiments run, all of those things at the end of the day are vanity metrics. They're, you know, you, know you, you, can, you can write all the code, you can run all the experiments, you can talk to all the customers, but if you don't use that to, to create the best possible experience, the things, are, the things that you described, I'm going to abandon for Amazon, I'm going to abandon for Netflix, are always going to happen because they, those organizations care about the customer. Yeah, I, I think that's a great observation too, Ryan, in that if I think back 15 years ago or so, somewhere in that time range and um, what people were asking for out of applications 
were thing that were very feature based sort of things. That's what I remember at least. They were very feature based um, um, sort of things. Uh, like why can't this do uh, do this like uh, Windows does it or um, something like that? And what I hear people say now are things that are higher level. It's like, why does this feel so clunky? Why doesn't this feel as intuitive as my iPad? Uh, those sorts of things. If people are talking about and comparing themselves against good usability uh, experiences, not features. So I, I think you're right. We're, we're, we're coming into a new, a new battleground, if you will. Yeah, and I think that's why this class that, you, that, that, that Jeff and Josh and Eric and Gary have put together um, you know, Josh Seaton and, and Eric Weaver, they couldn't be on this particular discussion. We'll try to get them on another one. But the four of you have put together a class. It's, you know, it, it could be easy to just look at it and say, well, I'm not a UX person, so it doesn't apply to me. And I think that would be, um, I think you're shortchanging yourself if that's, if that's that, at that first glance, that's how you take a look at it. These practices are important. They need to be part of, of your, scrum, um, your scrum practicum. This is how I think we win in the future, and I, and I believe that you know, uh, Jeff and Gary, along with Josh and Eric, you guys have put together a really awesome two-day uh, course for people to really dig into these ideas and learn how to incorporate them into their products to ultimately learn how to serve their customers better and validate that what they've put into the world was actually needed and solved a problem I think that's a huge nut to crack, and I think you guys have done an excellent job with it. So I just want to thank you for that, and also thank you for sharing these ideas and some of the, the, the insights into this course on, uh, on Agile for Humans today. Thanks so much for having us. This was terrific, and I'm really glad we had a chance to, to talk about this. I know Gary and I have taught this class together uh, in beta a few times, and uh, it's, fun. it's fun to hear, uh, to, to, to hear us uh, say each other's words without prompting here. That's really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank, thanks a lot, Ryan. There's uh, great questions too that helped, uh, helped prompt us to, the, to some of the really important parts of, of the work that we're doing here. So thank you. Yeah, it was totally my pleasure. This is the part of the show where I like to open it up to the guests. So Gary and Jeff, um, this is a time where you can tell people how to continue the conversation with you. Websites, email, LinkedIn, Twitter, however you prefer to do that. Do you guys have some courses coming up? Gary, I want to get with you offline, maybe Jeff too, and figure out how we can co-train this thing and bring it to the Midwest. But um, do you have classes coming up? Uh, if so, let's get those promoted. Let's get people in this class. Let's get people talking about UX and Scrum um, all over the country, all over the world here. But other than that, how can people continue the conversation with you? Where can they go to learn more about the course or anything else that you would like to promote? The final minutes belong to the two of you. So ahead, for me, uh, okay, cool. So for me, I'm, su I'm uh, super easy to find by design. Um, on Twitter, it's Jay Boogie. I do all of my promotions there. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, and feel free to connect there. Um, and then I've got a website, gothealth.co, um, where you can go, and I, I list all the events, and there's videos of me doing talks and lots of other fun stuff. Yeah, and for me... Uh, my last name is spelled P-E-D-R-E-T-T-I, so Gary, G-A-R-Y, Pedretti. Dot, um, you can find me at Gary at GaryPedretti.com if you want to send me an email. On Twitter as just Gary Pedretti. And my company, 
is Sodoto Solutions. Sodoto is an acronym, see one, do one, teach one. So S-O-D-O-T-O, SodotoSolutions.com. And yeah, check it out there. And uh, keep an eye on the scrum.org website also. Uh, when you, If you go and take a look at the, if you look up the uh, classes that are available, um, you can search by class type. So you could set up uh, your search for professional scrum with UX and see the courses that are coming up. We've got a few um, around the world, including one uh, near the Netherlands in Zwolle uh, at the end of March here. So That's great. Thanks. And so for the those people in the Chicagoland area, that's Gary's home base. He's a great trainer. If you have some scrum, especially professional scrum with UX needs, uh, he's the guy to call. We'll get uh, all of his information out on the website. We'll get Jeff's stuff as well. We'll even link to Josh and Eric. We'll make sure that they get the credit here as part of the release. I know it was a, a team of four who got this across the finish line, and we cer- certainly don't want to shortchange them. Um, so as for me, your host, Ryan Ripley, it's at Ryan Ripley on Twitter. I'd love to hear your feedback about this kind of episode. I love getting people like Jeff and Gary on to talk about not just class promotion, but some of the ideas going into it, why these things are important and how they can help you. would love to have your feedback. Go ahead and hit me on Twitter. Um, share your comments. If you have questions, future guests, anything like that, I would love to hear those. Um, otherwise, um, I'm not going to promote anything this week. The class is the promotion, and so we will um, we'll honor that. We'll get some links in the show notes and make sure people know how to, to find that. Um, otherwise, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. All of you out there have made this the number one Agile podcast on iTunes, and I can't thank you enough for that. The numbers continue to go up. We keep bumping up in that technology com. I think we hit top 20 uh, just a few weeks ago. And so when I, I got that alert, blew my mind. So all of you are sharing the show and I can't thank you enough for that. Please keep doing it and please keep supporting our great guests like Jeff and Gary. And uh, yeah, you all are great and we'll keep more shows coming. So this is Agile for Humans. Thanks for being here, everybody. Have a great week. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and Scrum on.